Well, good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to be with you this morning um, for multiple reasons. One, it's always good, as, as Taryn said, um, I serve as a district superintendent, which means that I am um, working with and helping out churches, about 70 churches in Southeast South Dakota, United Methodist churches. But it's always good to be here and feel at home and to have somewhat of a home church uh, where my family and I can grow and learn and worship and serve together. And this morning, um, as I begin, I want to, some of you may or may not know that Steve is my husband, um, but Steve and I actually met in seminary. We met, went to seminary just outside of Chicago, and that's where we met. And while we were there, we had the opportunity to watch the running of the Chicago Marathon. Now, I don't know if any of you have seen that or another marathon, but it was inspiring and energizing, exhilarating. And I'm not a runner at all, at all, unless someone's chasing me. But being there with the crowd, cheering the people on, it was inspiring. And I went away from that event and I was like, yeah, I can totally do this. They've got plans on the internet. And so I downloaded one of those and I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm going to start training. I've got a whole year or maybe I'll find another one, you know, in a warmer part of the country and I can do this. And so I, you know, I got started on that for about two weeks and then I got busy and I got sore and my plan and, and goal of running a marathon really dissipated. Today, we are finishing up this series, as Taryn said, called In All Things. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to the messages the past three weeks, I would really encourage you to do that. The series started off with Pastor Steve talking about investing in people and relationships and how it can be messy, but also beautiful and life-transforming. The following week, Caitlin Christensen shared about her own experience of discovering part of God's calling on her life, encouraging us to step out of our comfort zones and invest in our church and our community and see how God will work through that. And then last week, Pastor Taryn invited us to talk about our, investing our financial resources and cultivating a spirit of generosity. And she challenged us to take just one next step and see what that might cultivate in our hearts and lives. And I have to say, even though I was on the road, and so I'd end up listening to these messages later on Sunday or on Monday, I found myself feeling inspired and challenged after each one. I found myself asking, okay, what's my next step? Who's that person of peace that I'm called to invest in? What is that need in my church or community that I'm uniquely called to meet? But I also admit, that in the days following each message, as I got busy and distracted by the regular demands of life, some of that zeal waned, kind of like it did for running a marathon. And I imagine my experience isn't unique. But while running a marathon is a noble goal, I know that my desire to faithfully follow Jesus and being a part of making God's kingdom known on earth as in, is in heaven, that's more than just a goal. That's, that's who I want to be. And I have to believe that's true for a lot of us. So what keeps us from losing steam, losing focus? As people who want to be all in with Jesus and want to see him work in all things, how do we stay the course when the roadblocks of life try and get in the way? 
Well, thankfully, Scripture is full of stories of people just like us, people who were trying to follow God faithfully even when it was challenging. So today we're going to turn to some of those words. Those words, and we're going to read from Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing a letter to the people at the church in Philippi. This was a new church. They're getting started on being followers of Jesus and what that means. And so we're going to hear some of Paul's words to them, words of encouragement and challenge as they do that. Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, what, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned but had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This is God's word, and we give thanks to God for it. So what is it that Paul has to say to us? Words that he said to other followers of Jesus trying to keep going, living out their faith. Well, to begin with, I think Paul reminds us of the importance of practice. Now, as a point of background, Paul is writing this letter from prison. So he's no doubt understands what it's like to, to be challenged, to keep living your faith when it isn't easy and when you're experiencing pushback. And he's writing to a group of people who've experienced persecution for practicing their faith, but who've also become, begun fighting amongst themselves amidst that stress. And so Paul, as part of this letter to them, gives them tangible practices. In a time when they were likely feeling discouraged, helpless, and vulnerable, when they probably felt like there were a million roadblocks to answering God's call, Paul gave them action steps, actions that were within their control that they could choose to do to keep going. Practices that would both ground them, but also form them. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, was given similar instructions when he was going through a challenging season in his own faith. He was having doubts, and he said, well, should I be preaching to others when I'm having doubts about my own faith? And so he sought the guidance of Moravian Bishop Peter Bowler, and Bowler said to him, don't stop preaching. He said, you preach faith until you have it, and then because you have it, 
you can preach faith. In other words, we don't just engage in these practices of faith when we feel like it. We practice it and we trust that our feelings will catch up. And just as Paul gave these Philippians clear, simple practices to guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus amidst the forces that were trying to get them to abandon their commitment to Christ, so I believe these same practices are relevant to keep our hearts and minds from being swept up by the internal and external voices that pull us away from God's call. Paul begins by instructing the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord, always. And if they didn't hear him the first time, he says it again, rejoice. Now, Paul knows the challenges they're facing, right? This isn't just a platitude. You see, Paul knows that rejoicing is actually a choice. It's a choice, an action that isn't based on circumstances or a response of our feelings. It's a chosen action that focuses on God. It focuses on rejoicing in God's power, God's work in all things, and God's invitation to us to participate. It's an action that can in turn shape and renew our faith. Likewise, when our minds want to drift into can't, into why investing or being all in is too hard or how it won't make a difference, rejoicing reminds us that we can. Because God is the primary agent and we simply have the privilege of partnering with God. Paul also instructs the Philippians when they're prone to worry, a very human nature thing, to instead practice prayer. Something that I think we need to be constantly reminded of if we're going to stay on this road of being all in. You see, as followers of Jesus, we know there's no end to the needs in the world, right? And it can be easy to get swept up when, when we're feeling all in to get in this anxious mindset of a, it's all up to us. It's up to us to save others, to fix all the problems, to meet every need possible. And when we realize that isn't possible, then we can easily swing to the other extreme and feel paralyzed or apathetic about doing anything. But prayer keeps us grounded in the truth that God is God and we don't have to be. Prayer keeps us attuned to God's spirit for guidance about when to go and stop, to rest and to work, to give and to receive. But it's also prayer that must include thanksgiving. Because thanksgiving reminds us of God's faithfulness and love and gives us the courage to take the next step. When our brains want to shift into fight, flight, or freeze of anxiety or overwhelm, gratitude helps us remember the truth of God's goodness and God's promise to work in all things. So we have these practices that Paul gives us, but I believe these practices also help shape a perspective that Paul invites us to have. Another thing that he tells the Philippians, and I believe us, is when it comes to staying the course, we need to be intentional about our thoughts, what to think on. This instruction from Paul made me think of the poignant Cherokee legend about a grandfather who's talking to his grandson. 
And he says, in life, there will always be two wolves inside us, always at war with one another. The bad wolf, which represents things like greed, hatred, and fear. And the good wolf, which represents things like love and compassion and goodness. Well, the grandson listens to him and think, and asks him, well, which one wins? And the grandfather says to him, the one you feed, the one you feed. I think this is so true when it comes to practice, the practice of guarding our thoughts. Thoughts that are shaped by the messages that we take in, but also the messages that we share. If we constantly consume a diet of negativity, fear, criticism, and contempt, our lives will produce that kind of fruit. We will see life as a competition for limited resources or recognition. Everything will be a threat to what we have, and our hearts and our minds will struggle to find peace and contentment, let alone the courage to put ourselves out there and invest beyond ourselves and our needs and wants. But if our thoughts are fed by things that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, and admirable, that is the fruit that will grow in our lives. And is a fruit that will grow even more as we plant seeds through relationships, service, and generosity. Another key fruit that will grow is one that Paul says that needs to be evident to all, and that's gentleness. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this word gentleness in the scripture, all I can think of is Dakota's nice. Well, just be nice to everybody. That's what you need to do. But the truth is, this word that we read as gentleness is so much more. Bible commentator Holly Heron writes, in Greek, epiakeus, the word that we translate as gentleness, is associated with tolerance, not insisting on every right or letter of the law or custom. She says to embody epiakeus means to recognize that we have a choice in how we behave toward others. It's not just about being nice or kind. It's actually an exercise of power. As I read that, I think when we are so anchored in who we are in Christ, when we trust that God will provide enough, then we are able to be humble and gentle. We don't have to feel threatened or anxious or forceful about getting our own way because we know that God is working in all things. We can invest in someone who may not fully reciprocate because we know God does the work of transforming, not us. We can try something, no, even if it doesn't work out, because we know that our worth is not based on the results that we produce. And we can give a little more than we thought we could because we trust in the God who provides. This perspective of contentment and peace and trust acts as a catalyst to keep us moving forward in all things. And I believe it's what we see most clearly in Paul's words and actions. And that is the encouragement to persevere, to keep going. Friends, following Jesus, committing to stretch ourselves, to be brave and kind and generous, it, it's not always easy, is it? Our human nature gets in the way a lot. 
But in the same way that having a healthy mind and body takes intentionality and commitment and takes getting up and starting again when we stumble or struggle or want to give up, so it's the case with having a healthy spirit that is open and desires for God to work in all things, in all aspects of our lives. Paul knew that, which is why he shared that reminder of what it takes to persevere with that often quoted line, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, I often wonder if our Western independent individualism often leads us to focus on that. I can do all things. But it wouldn't have been that way for Paul. Throughout this letter, as well as all of Paul's letter, he reminds us that it is Christ who gives him strength. It is God who makes a way, enables him to persevere, and it is the Lord who provides and transforms. If we are going to persevere in being all in, in investing in these different ways, in living this kingdom life, if we're going to persevere when we face those internal and external roadblocks and have the courage and commitment to be all in and open to God working in all things, then we can't forget that. Because ultimately, that is the story of our faith. A faith told through the scriptures of people who faced valleys and giants and enemies and yet still persevere, still believe that God was working and saw it to be true. It is a story of faith that has been modeled by those who have gone before us. Those who have invested in us and in others. Who have been courageous and vulnerable and stepped out in faith and into the messiness of relationships and service so that the love of Christ might be made real. And those who gave generously, sacrificing so that communities of faith like Fusion might exist for future generations. And it is a story of the kind of life and faith that God doesn't just want from us, but that God wants for us. We are created in the image of God. And what we see in God's character most clearly through Jesus Christ is that God is a giver. He gave his only son. He gave up the comforts of heaven to step into the messiness of this world. He gave his life. And he offers us the gift of eternal life. A life that starts when we say yes to Jesus. And when we live with that same generosity of spirit and life, we are being who God created us to be. God's light and love and character shine through us. And it is not only life-giving to us, but it is life-transforming for the world around us. And so that is my prayer for all of us that we would continue to be intentional about those practices that help us stay the course, that cultivate courage, generosity, and trust, and encourage each other to keep taking that next step, whatever it might be, even when our spirits wane. I pray that we would guard our hearts and minds, think about those things that we're taking in and putting out so that we can reflect the heart of a Christ and embody an invitational posture to others. 
And I pray that we might experience not only a peace that surpasses understanding, but also a continual renewal of our spirits. That we might run with perseverance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And trust that he is working in and through it all. To close this morning, I want to lead us in a prayer. It's one we've read before at Fusion, but I think it's a part of our faith heritage. And it's a continual act of surrender. Of offering ourselves to God so God might work in all things. And I'm going to rephrase it, reword it a little bit, so I pray it on our behalf. It's John Wesley's covenant prayer. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are no longer our own. We are yours. Put us to what you will. Rank us with whom you will. Put us to doing. Put us to waiting. Let us be employed by you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let us be full. Let us be empty. Let us have all things. Let us have nothing. We freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O oh glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are ours and we are yours. So be it. And the covenant which we have made on earth let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. This morning, we're celebrating the sacrament of Holy Communion. It's that practice that reminds us, reminds us of God's goodness in our lives, reminds us of God's generosity and all that he has given and reminds us to be thankful as a part of that response to God's goodness and generosity. It's a sacrament that was given to us by Jesus himself. That night when he gathered with his disciples in the upper room, and he knew this was his final time with them, so he wanted to give them a powerful act to remember who he was and who they were called to be, who we are called to be. And so he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he gave it to him and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this every time you eat it in remembrance of me. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup he gave thanks and he gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. And so as we remember God's mighty acts through Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ as we proclaim the mystery of our faith that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. <laughs>